You're listening to Beyond Bones, a podcast by the Houston Museum of Natural Science. I'm your host, Chris Wells. We're all about looking beyond the bones, beyond the artifacts, beyond the physical remains that are housed in our exhibit to tell the stories of triumph and tribulation uh, behind some of the objects on display in our collection and some of them that aren't on display in our collection. Today we're here with Daniel Ferguson, who is the writer and director of our new giant screen film, Superpower Dogs. How are you doing today? I'm well, Chris. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back in Houston. Oh, good. Yeah, I know the weather's not super hot yet, so it's it actually kind of pleasant. I, I just, you know, swam at the master's team at Rice University. No way. Yeah, and uh, I, you guys live in paradise here. I mean, like with this temperature. With this, uh, we live in paradise for like three weeks yeah, out of the year, and then the rest of the time it's like the worst place in the world. So, But you're from Canada, right? I am. I live in Montreal, and uh, I'm actually completely jet-lagged because I just arrived from Japan like two days ago. So. Oh way what were you doing in japan uh it was vacation uh i'm, I'm just uh, my family love japan my wife speaks japanese and so we we're out visiting friends and seeing if we can get superpower dogs off the ground in, in in japan wow so all right so for anybody listening so uh daniel ferguson has directed many movies that we've actually shown in our giant screen theater um some of them here i'll just give you a quick list of, of some of the movies um jerusalem um, Journey to Mecca in the Footsteps of Batuta, The Last of the Elephant Men, Wired to Win. I mean, there's a lot of films here. And, I mean, you have such a cool job. I mean, you travel all over the world uh, filming this stuff. I'm kind of curious, like, how do you become, like, an IMAX director? How did you end up here? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I mean, part of it's serendipity. And, uh, and the other is just a lot of hard work and focus. Uh, so... Uh, for me, it started pretty young. Uh, I was always a film lover, and I wanted to just combine all my interests of, of music and theater, and film does that. Uh, but I didn't know that I was going to end up in this sort of giant screen, large format world. That was sort of by happenstance. Uh, it was about 20 years ago, and I was just working on a feature film, a co-production of Canada and India, and I got an offer to, uh, at the beginning, I was a line producer, which means the person who takes care of all the um, the below-the-line work, you know, sort of, I call it visas and vaccinations. So meaning all the logistics and all the budget and how to get people around the world. And, you know, with any business, if you do something with a minimum degree of competency, uh, people want you to do that same thing again and again and again. Uh, my interest is in, in more of the creative side, but I was willing to do the logistics as well. It was a great way for me to learn. So when I was in my 20s, I ended up uh, going all over the world and filming in very um, isolated and strange and sometimes dangerous conditions. And you eventually get a reputation for, oh, that's the guy who's going to be able to go out and get the job done no matter where it is. Wow. And um, I think, because I've been kind of following your career and reading up on you, um, you have a degree in history and religion. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. I uh, went to McGill University in Montreal, uh, which is where my love affair with that city began. I am Canadian. Uh, and I didn't know what I was going to study, but uh, it was either film school. Uh, my father actually offered to send me to, you know, one of the big California schools. When I saw the price ticket, you know, for a Canadian, it's a huge shock. And I wasn't going to bankrupt my family. So I decided to go for the academic education and pick up a camera and just start learning. And I actually formed a filmmaking uh, collaborative, like a collective, when I was in university. And we kind of ran it as a business. So we did night school. We offered apprenticeships for students on sets. And I learned a ton. I met a lot of filmmakers there. And we sort of built a community. And by the end, I almost struggled to graduate. Um, but I found the most interesting subject 
subjects for me were uh, metaphysics and, and theology. Uh, so I have a joint degree in history and, and comparative religions, funnily enough. Um, and I never could have imagined, you know, making a film on the pilgrimage to Mecca or Jerusalem. That was just, again, happenstance. But uh, I think my background sort of helped. Oh, yeah, I think so. And those movies have like a very specific kind of point of view that I think is directly related to that. And they're, one, one of the interesting things is that you don't really, you're not pushing an agenda or anything like that, which is very good because so many documentaries and movies do. But what's interesting is like kind of about documentary film directors. You know, everybody's familiar with Hollywood, the entertainment business, you know, the big actors and directors. And then, you know, you have kind of these documentary directors who we see your movies every day. You know, it's important. We see them on TV. We come to the museum to see them. Um, but we don't know that much about you, I think think, you know, and like, is it different? Is it kind of a different world being in kind of that documentary filmmaking thing? Um, Because you have a little bit of experience in both fields, I think, right? Entertainment and documentary. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a sort of a healthy crossover. Uh, I, I like to dabble in both, but I have to say that making documentaries and especially for the giant screen it's really pleasurable um, because you get a chance to, every film's like a thesis project where you immerse yourself in something you didn't know much about, whether it's neuroscience or the Hajj um, or, or tribal culture in Cambodia, Vietnam, or in this case, uh, the world of search and rescue dogs. So it's kind of, it shows you how malleable you are. Uh, and it's an essentially, it's a collaborative pursuit, right? If you want to do something by yourself, you know, go write some poetry or paint or sculpt or whatever it is, but it's a collaborative art. And so the greatest hope for filmmakers is that you bring your vision, but it just gets better and better the more you collaborate with composers and editors and directors of photography. And that's what's so intoxicating about the whole format is that uh, it's not just your vision. You know, if you're able to collaborate um, in a healthy way and open the door for other ideas, it's just so, so exciting where you end up. Oh, wow. So it is. It's, it's an all an art form. It's just really what, you know, one's educational, one's entertainment. But they're both entertainment, I guess. I right? think they're yeah. both entertainment. I mean, I think our job is primarily to, especially in the world of the giant screen films, you know, we're pleasing five-year-olds to 85-year-olds, right? So we've got to keep it entertaining and engaging and try and really uh, imagine you're the audience. You know, people say they make films for themselves, but I test my films extensively, especially with kids, uh, just because they're a huge part of the audience. Less so in Jerusalem, it was skewing a little bit older, but Superpower Dogs is a film that I essentially made for my own kids and for kids around the world. It's not a kiddie movie. It's meant to appeal to adults as well. But uh, it's something that I wanted people to laugh and cry, and I wanted it to sort of position to be a summer blockbuster. So it would be highly entertaining, but it's like the real Paw Patrol in a sense. You know, that's kind of how I structured it, or the doggy Avengers. So I could riff on all those superhero myths uh, and, and, and cliches. Uh, but treat them with this real life spin. You know, most of the kids who watch this movie, they go, was that real? And I say, you bet it was. It was just the treatment obviously was somewhat cinematic and exaggerated. And we use slow motion, all kinds of technology to, to make this larger than life. But the essence of it is a true story. And when you get a true story with the right treatment uh, in the right venue, I mean, it can be as entertaining as the Avengers, you know, dare I say.
Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because when I first heard the movie was coming, like, so like, I'll admit, like, I'm not a dog person, which is a horrible thing to admit. Like, probably half of the audience just like clicked off right now when I admit it. But, but I wasn't. And then also, you know, not super into superheroes. So I was like, okay, well, let's see. Let's check it out. But the movie is just, you know, it has that kind of action adventure quality to it. But then also, like, it's a, it's a really cool story, and it shows you a side of the rescue jobs that, that you don't see, the training, like where they get their training from and all of that. So it's really cool. Um, where do you get the ideas for these movies? Because you, you write and direct these things, right? I do, and in some cases they come from me, but oftentimes they come from other people. So in the case of Jerusalem... I went into that film kicking and screaming. You know, I didn't actually want to make that movie because I just thought, oh gosh, you know, what do I have to say on, in that case, it was Israel-Palestine and the whole conflict. And that was what immediately came to mind, even though I'm fascinated by the city. And I thought, what, what can I do that's novel here? I just don't want to make the same film. And I watched everything I could and I actually had an agreement with my producers to give me three months of paid reading time on that film so I could read as much as I could before setting foot in the city. It could be overwhelming. And then slowly but surely over many trips, I figured out a way to do something that I hadn't seen before, which was the, the, the story of that city from, in this case, uh, four different perspectives. And they were female perspectives. I hadn't seen that before. That was novel for me. So you get Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and secular perspectives. Um, three of the four are these young women, of course, who their lives intersect um, in very indirect ways. And then you weave sort of Benedict Cumberbatch telling you this 5,000-year-old narrative from pagan to Israelite and Christian, Muslim, all the way up until today. And that's something that I felt I could put my own voice and my own ideas, not necessarily a faith or political slant on it, but I could make it inclusive, which is something I hadn't seen before. Everything I'd seen on Jerusalem was very partisan. You know, it was like um, blue or red, you know, or, 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 you know, team A or team B. Uh, and, I, and I just... Everything started with a sort of traditional narrative of, you know, sort of Abraham, David up or whatever it was. It was from a very, very specific perspective, whether it was from a faith-based perspective, Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, whatever it is, or a, a, a cultural perspective. What did the city mean? And I wanted the Jerusalemites to tell their own story so that the audience's assumptions were changed. And I've tried to do the same thing with superpower dogs, is that I'll make a confession, Chris, is that I am a dog nut now. But uh, I wasn't necessarily when I started the movie. Not that I didn't like dogs, I just never grew up with them. So my producer, uh, Dominic, who is a dog nut, came and said, I want to make a, a, a movie for the giant screen on dogs. And I was sort of hesitant. I was like, prove it to me. You know, why do dogs belong on a screen this size in this kind of environment? What do we have to say that's new that hasn't been done online or on TV before? Because if we just do that, we're wasting the audience's time. And I'm interested in the anti-television experience, the anti-small screen experience. For me, you know, I grew up with movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Lawrence of Arabia um, that really made you get out of your house. You're not going to look at the great Nifu desert on a laptop screen. It just doesn't, doesn't really work, you know. Um, but there's this sense of um, the kind of the Broadway play aspect to these movies that if you miss it on the giant screen, your life is impoverished in some way. And that's what we're doing here, I think, is we're trying to build this theatrical experience. It's like an exhibit, but you've got to go to the Wortham. You've got to go to the Houston Museum of Natural Science to see this movie. Otherwise, you know, what, what's the point? That's true. And it's a way for people to see places that they may never... I mean, a lot of people go to Jerusalem. It's true. Not everybody gets to go, though. And then, you know, in films like Journey to Mecca, 
um, or even in the Jerusalem movie, there's there's scenes of places that most people will never get to see, you know. So it's an impressive thing, and you know, it's funny how you mentioned like um, how you were not completely sold on both of these ideas because when I was watching, I really enjoyed both of those movies, and when I was watching them, they kind of they kind of like sold me on the ideas. Like I was sitting there like, oh my gosh, I want one of those giant fluffy Italian dogs, you know? And so, and it's cool. And I guess that kind of reflects your journey, you know? Um, I guess you have to have an open mind uh, when you go into stuff like this. Yeah, I'm a very sort of defensive driver. You know, I sort of look at all the reasons not to do the movie. Uh, Because if I'm going to spend a few years of my life and a lot of money to do this, we have to come away with it. We've got to go in thinking we're trying to make the ultimate movie on dogs or Jerusalem or whatever it is. Uh, and that's not to say that there isn't room to do a million stories in the subject. There are. But uh, I just think that we've got to find some kind of novelty. There has to be, uh, you know, people have come up to me and said, you know, I thought it was going to be a dog movie. That was like a movie movie. And that's the best compliment that I think I can get, which is to say that in a limited screen time, which is the film's 45 minutes, you're building essentially a multi-act story with real stakes. Um, and hopefully, you know, the audience agrees they're not contrived. You know, we followed a puppy over three years uh, and the puppy's human handler, the puppy's partner who goes through a lot of emotional ups and downs that I think the audience can relate to and it really resonates emotionally. So the movie has heart. And that's, I think, uh, at its essence, both Jerusalem and uh, Superpower Dogs have that sort of integrity of spirit to it, where I'm on this journey as a filmmaker to justify my role and what I have to say and all this money and apparatus. uh, And I'm hungry to do something really, really new where the audience goes, I had no idea, or I thought it was going to be this, and it turned out to be that. Here's one question that I have that I always wonder with documentaries. So how much direction do you give? Like, is everything you see on the screen, like, did it just happen by happenstance? Or do you have to sometimes kind of write and direct your way into certain storylines? I have a a particular process, and I don't know whether it's unique to me, but it's the only way that I know how to work, which is that I actually script everything like it's a fiction. So if I were to show you the shooting script, uh, it's pretty close. And I actually storyboarded the entire movie of Superpower Dogs, except for the puppy sequences. And then uh, we go out and we let the magic happen. So in other words, you have a, a, a structure that you're working within. And I share that with the entire crew so that, you know, the key grip or the gaffer or whoever who's on set, a continuity person, they can give me an idea and I can incorporate that. Like the best directors I've worked with are ones who they're like an open book. They say, okay, guys, here's what we're going for in this sequence. Here are the storyboards. Here's what I want. Here's kind of the scripted. And and it's going to be totally different because what you have to do is you script, you might storyboard, you prep for everything. And then you know what? On the day, you just got to follow the dog or you got to follow the action. And you have to be uh, malleable in that sense. And then when you get in the editing room, you just, you know, you're listening to your material. So you almost have to throw out your script and start again and not completely, but you just have to find the essence of the material. And that's why you got to work with a, a strong editor who preferably has never been on location and has no attachments to how much money you spent or what you went through to get the shot. Uh, and they can sort of bring their own sensibility of pacing and narrative and stakes. And that kind of um, 
collaboration and sometimes tension and arguments between say an editor, director, producers, and whoever's involved is a good, healthy thing. Sometimes I think too much power consolidated in one person is, you know, it can be, we can wind up with the Star Wars prequels. You know? <laughs> um, that's kind of what happens. And no offense to, you know, we all love George Lucas, but you know, there's, there's something sometimes in a movie where people are afraid to say, you know what, um, I, that might not be the best way to go, or here's another idea. And you should always be open to that. You know, I say that as, as no matter what your experience is, don't get to the point where you think you have all the answers, because that's a dangerous place to be, I think. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, there's probably only like three people in the world who are capable of making a movie themselves. And two of them are probably not making movies. They're off in some other country somewhere doing something. But um, but that's really cool. So have you ever started out with you know storyboard, an idea of what you wanted to make, and then you ended up making a completely different picture? Yeah, I would say that... Uh, True, a true documentary and some of the best, you know, my favorite documentaries are ones where the filmmaker has been able to respond. You know, Icarus was a responsive documentary um, and, and there's a ton of uh, you know, Capturing the Freedmans is another. And there's a, a ton of docs where they start out making X and then all of a sudden Y comes along and the movie ends up being sort of a hybrid or something else. And so, for example, in the case of Last of the Elephant Men, which we shot over three or four years on the Cambodian-Vietnamese border, I knew that I wanted to make a story about the end of a way of life and these, this tribal community who lives with elephants and believe that elephants have the same souls as humans, but I didn't know which characters were going to be in the final cut. And so I obviously filmed more. I filmed this marriage ceremony. It never made it in. Um, in the way it's Superpower Dogs, same thing. I filmed an extensive wolf sequence, all about the background and the genetic origins of dogs. Never made it in. It's not in the movie. There's actually a ton of stuff that didn't make it in. And that was just an extensive process of like listening again to the material and finding the narrative and finding the emotional line and what's working for the audience and for you. And you sort of have to just, without wasting a lot of money, you know, this is what no one wants to do, but you have to kind of continue to chisel away at what the essence of the thing is that you're making. And oftentimes it's a little simpler than you started out. So you write the thing that's gonna raise the money but then when you make the thing for public consumption, you have to continue to, to step back. You know, I always advise filmmakers to read your whole script as many times as you can, because you can get lost in one scene or even one shot. And same thing when the year in the editing room is watch your movie from start to finish regularly, because you can forget, you know, one scene might be working perfectly, but all of a sudden, in the context of the whole, it's just one layer of the cake too much, and it's too rich, and there's maybe one too many characters. And just trying to keep that, as you said, that open mind where you're always listening and you're always testing with an audience, but obviously following your gut as well. Um, that's just really important to, to continue to be open-minded. And maybe that's the difference in, in a doc. There's a bit more forgiveness for that. I love the films of, say, Robert Altman and others, and... Cassavetes, you know, who allowed for um, an amount of improvisation on set as well. And I think you can feel it. Like when you're on set and there's an amazing performance by an actor or a dog or whatever it is, you feel it right away when you're looking through the viewfinder or the monitor. And it can only be enhanced. Hopefully you don't screw it up by, you know, over wallpapering it with, with unnecessary music or whatever it is. But it's just to always be aware of those emotions you felt a, when you wrote it, and B, when you shot it. And the crew feels it too, and you just don't lose sight of that. Wow. So 
when you're out there, so some of the places that you've been to, all right, um, speaking of like inspiring moments and, and things like that, what you see through the viewfinder. So some of the places that you've been to are, there's a lot of stuff going on politically. You know, for example, in Jerusalem, um, I believe I heard that you were like the first person in a very long time to get permission to fly over Jerusalem to get aerial shots. Like, what's it like working out there? Well, yeah, that's correct. We uh, spent about a year and a half trying to negotiate with the various military and counterterrorism bodies in the Israeli government to fly a helicopter at altitudes of, say, 300 feet and below over the, some of the holiest sites in the world for half the population on Earth. Uh, and, and, and that hadn't been done in about 25 years. And uh, I don't know still to this day how we did it because it hasn't been done since. And I think it was just we brought the gear and the people and we still didn't have the official permission when everything was in place. We even got permission at the time from Shimon Peres, the president. It didn't mean anything because there was a bureaucrat in the Ministry of Transport who said, forget it. This is the craziest idea of you. You're going to fly in um, you know, noon Friday prayer over, over um, the mosque and you're going to fly over uh, the Good Friday procession from the Mount of Olives. Like, are you crazy? Do you want to start World War Three? You know, there's this kind of thing. And we flew with a police escort and this kind of thing. And and uh, the the pilot was Israeli, Israeli military. We had to train him in terms of how to sort of think like a filmmaker because they're essentially the camera operator. And I don't know, you just, you don't even believe it until you actually get the film back from the lab. Um, I think sometimes that filmmaking is like a miracle that you're just a witness to uh, because you kind of just put all the places, the things in place. And, you know, in the case of working in Saudi Arabia, I think we spent years trying to get the blue permit to allow us to go into the Haram Mosque uh, in, in Mecca. And I didn't go because I'm not Muslim, but we trained you know, a Muslim crew of like 80 people and how to film with IMAX cameras and all this crazy gear. We brought in a team from, from Bollywood and India with cranes and everything. We had an old Huey Vietnamese era, you know, uh, 1965 helicopter. And you know, it was just a rickety Tyler side mount. And it was all quite unlikely and a bit ragtag. Uh, but I think if people see that you're really committed and really serious, it's almost like you have to be on your knees begging for the shot, you know, and explaining how important it is. And then there's that human connection where the bureaucrat who's generally said, no, if you can appeal to them on a human level, they'll say, all right, fine, you know, but just don't tell anybody and just, you know, try to be careful or whatever it is. And, you know, I'm not talking about being disingenuous because sometimes you know, people listen to someone like Werner Herzog and he says, just do it and don't have a permit and everything. I, I don't advise, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But I think you have to go through the motions and, and, you know, sometimes you have to accept no, like I'm very stubborn and I always believe there's a way around and I always think that I can win. Uh, but in the case of filming uh, the first Friday of Ramadan on uh, the sacred Esplanade or the Temple Mount or Al-Aqsa Mosque or whatever you want to call it, depending on what your allegiance is, um, you're talking about almost 100,000 Muslim worshipers up on the, uh, the platform at the Dome of the Rock area. Now, I wanted to be there to film that moment, and I needed it for the sort of end choral montage where there was a priestly blessing on the Western Wall, about 50,000 Jews, and the Holy Fire inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I needed this sort of for equal weighting, because I actually had the whole script color-coded to make sure that no religion felt like they're getting more less screen time than the other, and I just really wanted to be very egalitarian. Uh, and, you know, I went to Jordan three times, and I went to the Islamic Walk, you know, for years, and I had... Uh, thousands of cups of tea with everybody that was involved. And I finally got the permission to did it, to do it. But then the Israeli um, 
authorities, the military said, no way. You know, we're not going to take the risk of letting a Western crew up there with a bunch of equipment. You know, we just can't guarantee your safety. And I was so stubborn. And finally, I realized, okay, there's another way to do this. We're going to train um, a crew based in Bethlehem. We're going to smuggle the camera in, which I can say we did now, which we took it apart into tiny pieces, uh, including the tripod, the lenses, and we put each piece in a Ziploc bag in and we snuck it into the food. So a lot of the Gulf states like Qatar, they will donate like rice and hummus and meat, whatever it is, and it goes up to the, to the mosque on Thursday. And so what we did was we paid some bribes to get the equipment snuck into these bags. And then at about quarter to noon, or just 15 minutes before uh, noon prayer, the crew who had been trained by us and, and they'd been timed to do this because they had to do it in just a couple of minutes before they were you know, taken away. And they set it up and Allah Akbar and that was it. And they just ran the film and we got the shot and, and my phone rang and someone said, you know, your crew's up there. And I had these sort of fake ABC news badges that I had made for them. I said, no, no, it's, you know, it's ABC. And some of them did work for that. And I said, you know, if I like the footage, maybe I'll buy it or whatever. So I, you know, I was a bit sneaky in that, but I got what I needed and I was able, and, and in the end, everyone was proud of it. And they said it was fine, but it was a way of sort of turning a no into a, Ah, you know. Yes, yeah. But I mean, it's crazy because like we're dealing with like IMAX cameras, so they are extremely expensive. And so you're just packing them away and saying, well, hopefully, you know, hopefully they don't go missing somewhere between here and their destination. Like it does like that's crazy. That takes like a lot of dedication, I guess, and belief in yourself. But that's what it's all about. That's what I mean by keeping it special. That's why, you know, it's not a disposable sort of like little icon on Netflix. That's why you've got to leave your house to go out and see this. And these are kind of stories that are about how they pulled this off. You know, I look at what Chris Nolan does with the, you know, there's only a handful of these film IMAX cameras left. They're not making new ones. You know, obviously they're making digital cameras um, with, with Aerie, with the Alexa 6.5 and these kind of cameras and, and Sony's coming up with new stuff and digital's getting better. But those original film cameras are treasures. I mean, they're, they're, you can't put a price on them. Uh, and they destroyed one on the dark night. You know, these cameras are being taken to the top of Everest. They're being taken into the Marina's Trench. I mean, they're being taken to extreme places where, I mean, I don't know how many, there are five left or whatever, and they're making a couple new magazines, but IMAX isn't investing in their film camera systems. That's crazy. But, uh, all right, so, and here's something that I'm curious about, okay? Because, like, for me, like, digital is the best thing in the world. So what exactly makes the IMAX film cameras so special? Well, I should clarify this. Um, for the, the sort of technologically inclined listeners, which is that, um, you know, look, uh, 1570, meaning um, 70 millimeter, but 15 perforations on the top. So horizontal, it's a, you know, huge negative with a ton of detail. It's probably anywhere between 11 to 18K, okay? When we talk about 4K and 8K and these kind of things. So it is the best resolution and the most detail that we've come up with as any technology, digital or analog, anything. However, it's extremely expensive and very time consuming. So uh, a full magazine, which is a thousand feet of film is about three minutes or 245. And so that means once you've had a rollout, you got to reload. So you have to fly and then you have to land. And, and, and it's a process, you know, you look at Dunkirk um, shot by, you know, uh, Chris Nolan and, and, uh, and his team. And it's an amazing accomplishment to think that that was all done. And if you see original printed off the negative 15 perf in a theater, that's playing 70, you know, there's nothing that beats that experience. It's absolutely incredible. However, for a documentary like Superpower Dogs, 
uh, for me to run that much film through a camera to get that moment of behavior. We're not talking about a wild animal, we're talking about a domesticated animal. Nonetheless, when those dogs hear the word search or rescue, whatever it is, and they're jumping into the water, or they're long lining in from helicopter, you kind of got one take. You know, so you have to really, and we're following a puppy, right? We don't know what the puppy's gonna do. So in that sense, digital is a savior because it allows for better storytelling. So it's whatever tool in the trade. Luckily, we're at a point now where the digital technology is almost as good. I know that several people will probably disagree with me, um, but I think that from an audience's perspective, um, there's nothing wrong with it and no one should be ashamed of it. So Superpower Dogs is actually the first movie I've shot I would say entirely in digital. So we shot most of it with the Alexa 65, which has a huge sensor, the largest of any digital camera. We use the Phantom 4K Flex. Um, we use the Sony Venice, which is an amazing new camera. Um, we use red cameras for uh, Steadicam shooting 3D. Um, so it's whatever the tools for the trade. You know, I don't want to be too exclusive about this. I wish I were as uh, messianic, and, uh, you know, um, as Chris Nolan about film, and I love it. And I wish I could do everything in film. Um, and perhaps there's an experience to do an opportunity to do this. Jerusalem was shot much more in film. We shot all the aerials in film and I'm glad we did because there's that much more detail, especially when you're shooting cities and something was so much information. You want that, that, uh, so much, so much data, and then you scan it at a high, high bit rate and, and, uh, and away you go. So I just think we're in a very exciting point for filmmakers, no matter what format you're in, is that digital and high speed and all those things, you know, uh, the IMAX film cameras, they start, you know, smoke comes out of them if you go above 36 or 48 frames per second. And most of these dogs I shot at 60, 72, some at 96, some at uh, 240, just to make them more heroic. I actually did a lot of testing before I started with the dogs is to say, gosh, how do I make this? Um, how do I treat these dogs like they're Captain America or um, as exotic as a tiger or something? And that's choosing the right camera angles, the right lighting, a lot of backlighting, a lot of kind of Dutch angles, like it's a graphic novel, a lot of high speed stuff. So that the dogs almost seem like these luminous beings. Uh, I had to find that language because otherwise it's a bit pedestrian, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's a matter of using the technology, but always in service of the story. That makes sense. Yeah. And in the movie, I noticed too, when you were talking about like the Dutch angles, you know, looking up basically from the, like I noticed that a lot, there was a lot of really beautifully framed kind of shots in there. So it's very, it's very comic booky sometimes. It's very cool. Um, so one thing I'm also curious about, um, and I'm kind of jumping back into like the story thing from technology, but where do you, where do you find these people? Like, how do you find the people that you decide to follow in a documentary or animals? So research and development is absolutely critical. And I think, unfortunately, not enough filmmakers invest in that. You know, sometimes it's just, okay, we got the money or we're gonna do this and what, how do we start? And they just kind of go on a, what I call a fishing expedition. And then they bring back the footage and they find, they sort of weave a story together. And I just, as I said, I can't work like that. So for me, I need a minimum period of intensive research where I bring on a great research team and we do casting, you know, because I, sometimes I think, uh, a great documentary is all about casting. You know, I think my favorite documentary is Herzog's Little Dieter Needs to Fly. You know, like that character, I mean, how do you find those? Or some of the, the greatest documentaries that I think you respond to are, are very character driven sometimes. You know, sometimes they're, in, they're gripping stories. You just can't wait to see what happens next. They're plot driven or whatever. But oftentimes, like in the case of Superpower Dogs, 
once we figured out that we needed, you know, I just didn't want it to be episodic. I didn't want it to be a bunch of cool dogs doing cool stuff for 45 minutes. And I needed to have a narrative spine. Like I needed it to have unity. And I wanted to make a sort of hero's journey, like Peter Parker or Luke Skywalker or something, like as they discover their powers and whether they have what it takes. So in this case, it's our puppy. But I didn't know who the puppy was going to be. And I said, sort of sent out an all call to our research team saying, look, we're, we're searching for a puppy um, and a first responder, and we're going to follow them for a couple of years and see what happens. Um, and that was an expensive proposition because we're not talking about slap a camera on your shoulders. Like every time you want to shoot this puppy, you've got to ramp up and down. You got to prep for, for a week at least. You got to align your 3D cameras. You got to get cranes. And, you know, it's a fairly big team. So uh, our, lead, our head of research, uh, Jill, who went on to become our associate producer, um, said, listen, I just found this woman. Um, her name is Kat, you know, which is already unbelievable for a dog movie. And um, she's got this very sad story. She has just lost her dog. Um, her dog named Siren has just passed away of kidney failure at two and a half. And she's devastated and she's, you know, not sure if she's going to continue and so forth. And But she's thinking of going out to uh, Michigan and maybe picking a new partner. And I said, oh, that sounds amazing. That could be very, um, very emotional. And, and so we went out, you know, just sort of on a, uh, it's, it's a bit risky, but we went out, we brought a crew and sure enough, she uh, changed breeds. So she was um, very loyal to uh, yellow labs. And in this case, she went for a Dutch shepherd because she couldn't bear to look at another yellow lab. And that's how the whole story started. And when I met her, I realized uh, a bunch of things that one of her previous dogs before this dog had died, uh, had detected her breast and thyroid cancer that um, her son has diabetes and they were thinking of getting a support dog, you know, an insulin detection dog for him. So it just kind of, it had so much going for it. And it almost had this kind of mythological quality. Like, um, I don't want to exaggerate here, but you know, sort of like a broken woman, a broken family, a broken task force, because in the case of Florida Task Force One, if they do not have enough dogs to go out on deployment, they can't go out the door. So there's real stakes, like that dog needs to be successful and it's going to take years for her to put into that. Can you imagine, you know, working every weekend and then losing your partner um, within a couple of weeks? You know, there's real stakes to this. And I think anyone, anyone who's lost a pet, especially suddenly, you know, there's, there's an aspect of it that's like losing a child. How do you recover from that? So for me as a storyteller, that was kind of gold because uh, it was authentic it gets you to sympathize with the character right away. You want her to win. You want that dog to win. Uh, and that would just, it pointed the way forward. So that's what I mean by casting is everything. Research is everything. If we hadn't invested in research and development, you know, we spent weeks um, building a camera rig to see the world in 250 degrees, for example, because I wanted the audience to experience how does a dog see, hear, and smell the world. And so the same thing is, as important as casting is figuring out what's the best technology. We did three separate camera tests. And one of them was uh, building an array of three cameras together and then stitching the images in this sort of ultra widescreen format that reproduces the visual acuity of dogs, how sort of the sides of their periphery are uh, out of focus compared to ours, how they only see in um, blues and yellows and grays. So we, we took the reds and greens out, um, those kind of things. And then we actually uh, translated the dog's olfactory world into our visual one, which was really a lot of fun because if you think that we are shedding 
50 million cells every minute of our lives. So our skin and bacteria and um, sweat and breath and perfume and deodorant that make up our scent signature. Uh, what would it be like if you could see that? You know, it'd be these floating dandruffy sort of like Linus from Charlie Brown, you know, like images. And I just thought that would be so much fun for a kid uh, or, you know, any, any audience to be able to say, oh my goodness, maybe that's what it is like for a dog. And then it makes sense that they could find someone alive in a disaster site with, you know, rotting food and other animals and all these distractions and clothes. And how do you find, you know, that one person? It's, and, and yet we are such visual creatures that we could walk into a grocery store and pick the one breakfast cereal that we want out of, you know, hundreds of brands. That's an amazing feat. <laughs> That's true. And like being able to look at a label and know, oh, look, you know, Rice Krispies. I like those, you know, like... That's true. And we do it in milliseconds. You know, that's the amazing thing. So we have superpowers. So I wanted to kind of challenge that idea. And I don't want to say that I'm sick of the, here I am on Avengers opening weekend, right? Um, and Chris Evans obviously narrates the movie and, you know, it's a big part of it. But I just, after so many superhero movies, I just kept thinking, okay, what is up with this? Why are we so fascinated? I mean, obviously, you know, from, from Hercules all the way up to, to Iron Man and beyond, what's the deal? Why are we so fascinated with powers, you know? And, and then I started thinking and applying it to dogs, thinking, well, they have powers that we can only dream of. I mean, so do other animals. It's just that they don't really turn around and pay attention when we ask them to do something. You know, you can't get a, a tiger or a goat or whatever. You know, I just, that's the amazing thing about a dog is their, their willingness to please us and collaborate with us without an egoic agenda is really striking. And, you know, the closest thing is probably a horse, um, but we don't have that sort of direct, you know, the eye contact and that sort of direct collaboration and long history where, uh, we have, you know, dogs have probably facilitated, uh, if you believe the research, the agricultural revolution, our ability to keep animals, um, our ability to live in one place to keep us safe, uh, that kind of thing that we have this very, very profound bond with dogs. And I think only now in the past, you know, 10, 20 years, we're coming to a point where they are sort of considered worthy of serious academic study. And we're studying canine cognition and the sort of emotional bond we have with dogs. So, you know, when you say to me that you're not a dog person, I really relate to that because I grew up with cats. But I have to say that through this film and seeing all of the heroism, whether it's a reading dog or medical detection dog or search and rescue, or at least, you know, whatever it is, it's a pretty epic story, you know, our bond with dogs. Uh, and I think it's worthy of the giant screen. Yeah. Well, and, and I totally agree. And when you mention how dogs are superheroes, like, I mean, that's something that I never thought about before, but after seeing the movie, I mean, that's totally true because you do, you have a super strong dog, that Italian swimming dog that can literally like tow a boat and like literally just to give people an idea, like this dog will swim out. And if you're drowning, you can just grab onto it and it'll drag you back to sore. That's how strong that dog is. And, uh, yeah, anyway, it's cool because they are. They're superheroes, so it's cool. Maybe I might end up getting a dog now. Who knows? I'm maybe converted. I, I tell you, Chris, the number of people who've written me saying, like, we were on the fence, we saw the movie. So, you know, uh, we have Chris Evans at the end, and he comes out and he says, uh, 
you know, make sure you get the dog that's right for you and your family because after the 101 Dalmatians, and it was a run on Dalmatians, after Max, it was a run on German Shepherds. And, you know, what we don't want is for people to go out and get like a working dog or border collie that doesn't fit their lifestyle. You know, uh, every kid's going to want one, but, you know, do your research, that kind of idea. But I mean, even one of the dogs that's most amazing to me is, is Ricochet, the sort of surf and therapy dog in the movie, who um, is kind of the most dramatic representation of dogs and their ability to uh, know our needs, you know, on a deep, deep level, uh, whether it's the release of stress hormones, our need to calm down. Uh, even today, we're going to launch this film here in Houston and we're giving these awards to local hero dogs. And we've got some of the most amazing dogs coming. Some of them are emotional support dogs as well. And you know, the research suggests that dogs can detect uh, pheromones, which are like stress hormones. And there's a sort of um, vasoromoral organ that is located between the mouth and nose of a dog where they are really detecting these things. And it's not as simple as, say, smell or whatever it is, but their ability to process this. And I still think there's a lot of mystery surrounding it, but a great deal of research to suggest, you know, you hear these stories all the time of people say, my dog knows when I'm deeply sad or angry, or they can anticipate these things. So in the case of Ricochet, she's able to do it with complete strangers. That is absolutely remarkable. And I've seen her with different veterans um, responding to their triggers without them even knowing that a black van just went by, which is a trigger for them because a black van was there when an IUD went off in Iraq or Afghanistan, whatever it is, or someone in uniform or a bicycle. And in the case of each veteran, the trigger would be very different. And yet Ricochet would plant or stop and just make eye contact and almost know intuitively that you need to pet Ricochet because of the release of oxytocin or whatever it is that will calm you down, that your heart rate is beating or your pulse is quickening or you're, you're sweating, whatever it is. So dog's ability to uh, know our needs at this very profound level uh, I think is absolutely fascinating. And I think we're just at kind of the tip of realizing this. And I'm not, you know, a proselytizer for, for dogs by any means. Um, but I think that uh, there's a lot that they can teach us. Mm -hmm. Well, and honestly, I, that was the most fascinating part for me because it's not trigger was surfing which is awesome but there was no jumping around you know doing crazy stuff but the idea and i think at one point in the movie it's mentioned like scientists don't really know how that works yet like we're still figuring out like how some dogs do what they do and i find that fascinating you know they do have mysterious powers um all right so we're almost out of time i just want to ask you one more question and then i'll let you go because i know you have a super busy day um so where do you see the future of IMAX um, and giant screen theaters all over? Like, you know, people, a lot of people are afraid that it's kind of going away because we have Netflix, stuff like that. Well, I, I share that concern. However, I have this, this faith that people are still hungry for the experience of sitting in a darkened cinema with hundreds of other people and laughing together and crying together. Uh, I think that won't go away. It's a very different experience. Sometimes you need to sit with a glass of red wine on your sofa and take in a series or, you know, whatever it is on Netflix. But, you know, in the case of, uh, of, of Roma, for example, you know, I saw it on Netflix, but I went to see it in the cinema and it was a profoundly different experience. I loved it in the theater. 
and I didn't respond as well on the small screen, you know, for example. And I think that there's a lot of precedent for that. Uh, I have nothing wrong with it. I think that both have a place, but I, I would hope at least that the idea of, say, you know, uh, Damon Chazelle using IMAX cameras at the end of First Man, you know, that sequence where they finally land on the moon and you emerge from the lander and it just goes full screen, um, that's stunning. And, and I think that even if people can't put their finger on it, they will tell you about the moment that Batman jumped off in Hong Kong, you know, that sequence in, in Dark Knight or um, whatever it is, a moment in Interstellar or something like that, where uh, they, they just felt this sort of largesse, this grandiose quality that you just cannot get from the small screen. Uh, so I, I think we're going to continue to have growing pains. And look, I mean, streaming is just sort of almost in a sense getting started. You know, Disney and Apple and everyone's getting into it. And there's this glut of content, which is in a sense a good thing. I just don't know where we're going to land. My hope is that we will be able to see uh, extraordinary feature films. For me, there's nothing like that 90-minute or two-hour experience uh, where you're thrust into this world that you didn't know, this empathy box where you meet characters from the other side of the planet or a different world from you, literally, and you immediately identify with them emotionally. And it's transformative in the way that a book is. I think there's something that happens neurologically. Um, and I don't have any research to back this up, but I think that there's something about sitting down in a theater and shutting off your phone and turning off distractions and giving yourself over um, that is sort of this, uh, dare I say, you know, it's like a sacred space that I would hope that it remains sacred where you, you have this open mind. Hopefully the experience is good. That's why we got to keep it special. But I think, you know, films like Lion or The Lost City of, of Z or whatever, you know, I would love to see those movies um, with some original sequences shot in IMAX. You know, I loved what Brad Bird did with Mission Impossible 4. And the new James Bond movie is going to be shot with some sequences in IMAX. That's exciting for me. I would love to see more documentarians and, and more uh, feature filmmakers using the technology, thinking about different aspect ratios, um, thinking about, you know, everyone's talking about, wow, remember that sequence when... Look at the first J.J. Abrams um, Star Wars, the, um, the Force Awakens. There was only one sequence that was shot. The Abu Dhabi sequence was shot. Um, but when that expands to one, four, three, you know, full screen, uh, when I first get the Millennium Falcon or whatever, you know, there's that sense of anticipation and excitement and people start talking about it. And they're going to go to those, those cinemas, a place like this, to see that because they want that premium experience. You know, like free solo on a giant screen, it is unbelievable. It's nothing like seeing that at home. And I would hope that those experiences remain and that people talk about them and they remain, you know, special in the way that an exhibit or a Broadway play is that everyone just says, you got to go. And I think that's the future, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. And there's that sense of communal experience, too. You know, and even here at the museum, you know, we have lectures. We have people like you who come for special events. You're there. Uh, after the movie, people can ask questions and people discuss, and it's much more rewarding than sitting on your couch for sure. Um, but thank you so much for coming in. Like I could, I could keep you here all day asking questions. There's so much more I want to ask, uh, but we're out of time. Um, so thank you. And uh, for anybody listening, you know, come see Superpower Dogs at the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences Giant Screen Theater. It's a really cool movie. 
So that's it for our interview with uh, Superpower Dogs director, Daniel Ferguson. I hope you enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed talking to Daniel. He's a fascinating person. If you do uh, like our show, if you like today's episode and you want to hear more, uh, you may want to consider supporting us by buying a membership to the Houston Museum of Natural Science. Uh, not only are you uh, supporting this podcast by buying a membership, but you're also getting a pretty good deal. Uh, memberships include free admission to the permanent exhibit halls and half uh, or significant discounts on uh, temporary exhibits, films like Superpower Dogs in the Giant Screen Theater and also uh, Planetarium Films, and the Butterfly Center. It generally pays for itself in two visits, one visit if you have a big family, so it's a good deal, and it helps us continue to put out this podcast. Also, be sure to like and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choosing, and if it's possible, leave a review, because we definitely want to hear uh, what you think about our show. Until next time, stay curious. Thank you.